Though Taylor was founded on the death of ducks, it rose on the cushion of cotton. After the Taylors, both Czech and German no longer did business in the town they so optimistically named. The cotton industry started by the German Taylors continued to flourish. By the early 1900s, Taylor was one of the largest inland exporters of cotton in the nation. I could stop there, and most do, but I wanted to know the details of Taylor's early success with the crop. There had to be more to it. I wanted the why, the how, the who, the forgotten history. This is a tale of ducks and cotton. Chapter 2, The Rise and Fall of Cotton. The soft stuff. Round clouds. Texas snow. Puppy stuff. Plant hair. White gold. The pillow crop. Angel poo. Cot cot. Silent sheep. Dirt wool. Field cushion. Taylor's Delight. One of the first things my deep scan of old newspapers and almanacs found was that Tellurians were so surrounded by cotton, many colloquialisms entered the lexicon to refer to it. Those that you just heard were some of the more interesting ones. Straight on to business. I first focused on why Taylor was so suited for cotton. Being a graduate of the premier agricultural school in the state, Texas A&M, I decided to check with university experts if they knew what made the ground around Taylor so nourishing for the tax and growth of cotton. <laughs> Turns out duck poo makes pretty good fertilizer. <laughs> Dr. Rocky Evercrest is a research professor at Texas A&M in College Station. He had studied the soil of the Blackland Prairie region of Texas, and Taylor in particular, to discover what made it so good for cotton back then. Well, we discovered that the soil had been, uh, uh, you know, fertilized by ducks for uh, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, I, I got a sample of, of the duck dump and sent it to the, a lab to be analyzed, and uh, you know, it turns out to uh, be pretty much exactly what you'd want to to fertilize cotton with if you were uh, uh, to design it, which, you know, is, is something that, that we like to do. Uh, pretty crazy. So it wasn't good for crops in general, just cotton. Oh, well, you know, it's uh, it's good for any crop, but it just uh, seemed to be really, really great for cotton. Uh, you know, in fact, talking with the grandkids and the, uh, uh, the great-grandkids, uh, uh, some of the early farmers when we were doing our study, uh, they told me that the kids basically became like duck herders. Uh, you know, they would chase the ducks out onto the field, uh, you know, before planting and, and you know, try to scare the, sh uh, scare the uh, uh, fertilizer out of them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then after the, uh, the cotton had started to, uh, you, know, you know, bloom, uh, they, they had to try to keep the ducks out of the fields because, you know, they didn't want to have to, you know, uh, clean duck poo out of the cotton bowls. Well, 
It seems we can thank the ducks not just for putting Taylor on the map, but for nourishing its most important early agriculture as well. And while the farmers profited from exporting cotton, other enterprising locals would attempt to cash in on the cash crop. In my research, I came across an interesting article about a person named Greg Benson, a civil engineer from Texas A&M College at the time, who attempted to use cotton as a building material as part of his doctoral studies in the spring of 1920. He managed to build a small house out of only cotton balls, hot glue, and construction paper. It maintained its structure for a day until a small gust of wind picked it up and subsequent drizzle reduced it to mush. Afterward, the Taylor Gazette reported, and his failed doctoral thesis confirms, that Benson tried to improve the design by experimenting with a wider variety of glue, including Elmer's and Super, and by upgrading the construction paper to a more sturdy poster board. Unfortunately, the second attempt also failed. Greg was not too disheartened, ending his thesis with a quote, I do not consider my attempts a failure, for I have thus learned two ways to not build a house of cotton. He would go on to discover several more ways to not build a house, before deciding he had discovered enough. But Benson wasn't the only one looking for other uses of cotton. For just as George Washington Carver was creating his dozens of uses for peanuts, many around Taylor were attempting to expand cotton's usefulness. Another of Benson's contemporaries was Jean-Baptiste Bossieux, a French immigrant to the Taylor region. Being French, Jean-Baptiste loved all fancy forms of alcohol. His orchard of juniper berries outside the neighboring town of Thoreau provided the key ingredient for gin, one of the fanciest alcohols of them all. Looking for a way to incorporate the main local crop, the Frenchman added an extraction from cotton seeds to a traditional gin, then soaked it up with cotton fibers for a period of time. Bashir kept the details of his cotton gin recipe a secret and imitators couldn't match its distinctive flavor. However, cotton gin would be distributed along the railroad that came through town and was the house spirit of the Duck's Back Saloon. However, cotton gin's growth would be made more difficult thanks to a constitutional amendment banning the sale of alcohol. Boy, cotton gin was really something. One of the best things come out of Taylor. Self-proclaimed town expert Kel Taylor had a great-grandfather that was in the Williamson County Sheriff's Department during Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, it was my great-grandfather, W.J. Swenson, and, you know, he led several raids on people smuggling cotton gin. See, here's the thing. See, it was soaked up into the cotton, and you wouldn't think it, but, uh, you know, wet cotton looks pretty much the same as dry cotton as long as it's not, you know, completely, uh, completely soggy. So they would just show the officers like, yeah, look, it's just jars of cotton. And, you know, since there wasn't any probable cause, you know, they couldn't even search it or, or pick it up to see if it was heavy. So then wouldn't that make cotton gin particularly popular during the time? Why did it fade out? 
Well, the, uh, the county caught on to their little scheme and passed a law uh, or an ordinance or something that was uh, that said you couldn't store cotton in glass jars and it had to be you know any cotton had to be in paper you know whether it's at your house or you know in a, transporting it selling it whatever had to be in paper and here's the thing wet cotton it, it just it doesn't work in paper you can't you can't put it in there it just falls apart um, and, and you know it was it was W.J. Swenson my, my great-grandfather that uh, that suggested the ordinance uh, but <laughs> here's the funny thing even after it was, you know, pro prohibition was repealed. They, they never got around to repealing the ordinance. You know, it's crazy to think, but it's still illegal to put cotton in glass in Williamson County. I checked on Kel's claim and found that, yes, the ordinance is still on the books. However, the last time it seems to have been widely enforced was in the early 1990s. Of course, uh, I, I don't mean to imply that W.J. was, uh, you know, a goody two-shoes. Uh, you know, uh, my, my grandpa, his his son, always hinted there was something else going on there. Always hinted there was something else going on there. 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 So, having uncovered why Cotton was successful in the fields of Taylor and what people tried to do with it, I now shifted to how cotton was grown and harvested, specifically before the invention of mechanical cotton pickers. I was surprised to learn the first nuclear bomb came before the first commercially successful cotton picker, produced by International Harvester in 1947. Before then, the act of picking cotton was laborious. In fact, my very own mother spent time in cotton fields in her youth. There was someone back then that thought he could change things. For a brief instant, Colonel J.C. Owens thought he had revolutionized the cotton-picking industry. According to an article published in Texas Weekly Newsletter, 1923, Owens had succeeded in training ducks to pick cotton. I couldn't find any current living relatives of Owens, but the article mentioned that Owens provided excerpts of his journal to be used as a resource by the writers of the article. While the article didn't publish any quotes from his journal, my contact there, a friend from high school that asked to remain anonymous, was able to dig them up from their archives. It seems Owens, a lover of ducks, got into his head that they could be trained to pick cotton. They stood at the right height, and they were the right width to walk down the rows. Most importantly, Owens hypothesized their bills were structured perfectly for picking, or plucking, the cotton bowls right off the plants. The only problem he faced was training them to pick. Well, I'll let Owens himself explain. The following is taken directly from his journal. I have begun my second trial for the training of ducks and the harvesting of cotton. This time, I will start training the fowl from birth. The animals have intelligence, so I believe they just have not had the opportunity to demonstrate it. To teach the cotton-picking behavior in the ducklings, I have set up a miniature cotton field with small bits of cotton attached to twigs. Through experiment, I have discovered the ducks have excellent night vision, allowing them to harvest by moonlight or starlight, for the white cotton glows bright even for human eyes at night. 
I will show the ducklings that when a bit of cotton is placed in a bright red bin, a breadcrumb will be produced as their reward. I do not see how this could fail, and by the end of the growing season, I expect ducks not only to fertilize our fields, but also to harvest the very crop their droppings help to prosper. It would take Owens three more trials before he succeeded in training a duck to pick cotton in the harvest of 1920. One night during a full moon, he took a flock of 12 cotton pluckers, as he affectionately called them, to a sectioned off area of his family's cotton crop. By morning, the gaggle had plucked the entire acre. What had once taken 125 man hours to harvest, Owens had done in eight man hours and 96 duck hours, and the ducks worked for breadcrumbs. Well aware of how bizarre his scheme was, Owens feared being mocked by his local peers, which was why he bypassed the local news by going straight to Texas Weekly. It wasn't until the spring of 1923 that he revealed his mastery of cotton to the world. To say the journalist he summoned to observe his technique was impressed would be an understatement. The following is what the journalist wrote and published. Owen's quackers have perfected cotton picking to a degree the machine makers could only dream of. While the sight of the white-feathered fowl waddling down the rows is laughable, in time it will be Owen's who will laugh the loudest. Paying hired hands to harvest his crop costs roughly 25% of his revenue. The cost of the ducks, their food, and their care reduced that expense to 3%. He estimates that by 1950, ducks using his patent-pending technique will be harvesting half the world's cotton, and by the year 2000, ducks will be collecting not only all of the world's cotton, but other crops as well. Despite Owen's high hopes, his dream wouldn't last. For while the Taylor Gazette never commented on his success, it did document the eventual breakdown of his operation. After a successful harvest in 1923, he spent the next fall and spring training a new batch of ducks. By the summer, they numbered over 200. It was right as the cotton began to bloom that the unthinkable happened. According to the article in the Gazette, Owens ducks mutinied and raided the city for bread, which he had so masterfully trained them to crave. It only took them one night. Most residents didn't know they had been looted until they woke to find all bread missing and single balls of cotton in every red-colored cup or container. Owens was devastated and it took weeks for the city's bread supply to be replenished. Now realizing they could get bread themselves, the cotton-harvesting ducks would never return to the fields. After the raid, locals began offering their stale bread to the ducks in hopes of appeasing their lust for the baked good and preventing future raids. So far, so far, they have been held at bay. Having already discovered they played a part in both the founding of Taylor and the development of both its primary early industries, tailoring and cotton, I realized there had to be more about ducks and their history in Taylor than anyone knew. 
Next chapter, I uncover even more historical influences of the ducks in Taylor and the real story of how it became the school mascot. This podcast is a work of fiction and is for entertainment purposes only. Any reference to actual people or places should be considered parody and or satire and is not intended to communicate any true or factual information about such people and places.